Podcast where liberty is our mission. Today is Saturday, January 3rd, 2015. This is podcast number 387. And I got a couple of quick announcements and I want to make a couple of quick comments before I bring my co host on. And uh, so, as I mentioned in the last podcast, we are ending the Bad Quaker podcast um, in the immediate future. We are talking about what to do with the Bad Quaker Forum. There is a thread open on the forum that you can comment on and leave your thoughts on that, what needs to be done with the forum, what do you want done with the forum, what what can be done in reality with the forum. Um, also, I wanted to mention again that if we're going to archive the all of the podcasts from badquaker.com, we have to have a method of doing that. I don't know the method of doing that yet. We do not have the funding for maintaining a website indefinitely. We do not have the funding to, you know, to uh, to go through all those uh, 380. Actually, it's more than that. It's actually closer to 450 uh, recordings uh, because, as I explained on the last podcast, I didn't really have a unified f- uh, type of numbering system when we very first started this out. So I counted the the interviews one way, I counted articles, audio articles another way, and I counted podcasts a different way. So uh, we have about 450 files that in one form or another uh, would need to be archived if if we're going to do that. If if the funding is not available, then that's fine. You know, uh, I'll just save them on a hard drive and, and that'll be that. But uh, anyway, that's up to the market. If the market wants an archive of the Bad Quaker files... Then, uh, then the market will provide the way, and if the market doesn't provide the way, then that's you know it goes the way of the buggy whip. And I'm interrupting here to add this uh, post-production to this podcast. S- uh, since the recording of this podcast and after the release of the last podcast with the uh, on the topic of the Dangerous History podcast, uh, several people have come forward and volunteered different methods on how to archive uh, the, uh, the the podcast. So um, so nothing's set in stone in that yet. If you'd like to uh, add your two cents to that, please do so either at the Bad Quaker site or email me at badquaker at badquaker.com. So we're working on that uh, as we speak, and we are using uh, the input from listeners as well. Thank you very much, and back to the show. Now, I did want to mention uh, something that happened. First, let me introduce my co-host. With me today is my daughter and sometime co-host, making us, as far as I know, the only anarchist father-daughter podcasting team in the known universe. Kai, thanks for coming back on the show with me. Yay, I'm happy to be here. Um, Now, I wanted to mention, before we get really into the thing, uh, some of the things 
that typically cause there's there's a phenomenon called called pod fade. And pod fade happens when somebody is very enthusiastic. They get all the, they, they invest the money. They get this, you know, they get all the, they get a website. They get all the connections needed. They do all the stuff to get a, a podcast going. They're very enthusiastic about it. They start recording. Oftentimes they'll do it daily or they'll do it weekly, but they put a lot of effort into it. Maybe they'll get two or three people and it's a very exciting thing. And they're, and they're just podcasting like crazy and they're very enthusiastic. And then um, pod fade hits. And usually within a very short period of time, they go from extremely enthusiastic, making a lot of podcasts, to completely gone, vanished, disappeared, um, evaporated. And they exist no more in the in the world of the Internet. And, they're, and oftentimes even the old recordings of them vanish because they don't keep their website up or whatever. And so there's many reasons for pod fade. And I want to point out, that us shutting down the Bad Quaker podcast is not due to pod fade. But, uh, but pod fade is a really serious thing that hits early podcasters. And if you can do, and this is just a little word of advice to podcasters or potential podcasters, if you can do a couple things, um, it, you can avoid uh, some of the some of the more some of the stronger tendencies toward pod fading. One of the things is don't get your hopes high. Don't assume that you're going to go on the internet and thousands of people are going to immediately flock to you and listen to you and throw and throw money at you. It, you just assume those things are not going to happen. Another thing to assume is that you're going to get hit if if uh, if you if you become popular at all. You're going to be hit with nonsensical objections to your podcast. So if you're doing a podcast on, you know, transmission repair, you're going to have people yelling at you that that's not whatever you said about how to repair a transmission. That's not how radiators work or. Uh, or you're talking about how transmissions work and how you can repair a transmission or how you can maintain a transmission, and you get this nutcase who's screaming at you because butterflies are orange, and this is what you or face. Or that you're the Illuminati. Yeah, or they'll say you're just a government plant, or you're you're owned and operated by the by the by the Koch brothers, or some other ridiculous claim that you have to constantly tolerate these people. And Is there a person? Yeah. <laughs> And maybe the thing that's even more frustrating than that is going months or maybe even a year or longer where it seems like nobody at all has heard your podcast. And uh, and, thing that, and there's things that the listener can do to combat this. First off, if you if you hear a podcast that you like, figure out sometimes it's not easy because sometimes the new podcaster will hide methods of contacting them um but uh uh if so you they can, don't get called the illuminati yeah exactly um but if you can if you're listening to a podcast and you like the podcast try to figure out a way to give that podcaster some positive feedback and if you have the tendency to want to contact them and correct them on what they're getting wrong, you know what? Turn the podcast off and go listen to somebody else. Do not hassle the podcaster. Do not feel that it's your responsibility to correct everything that they say. Because oftentimes what I've found with annoying people who decide that they want to correct me on everything that I say, most of them are not bright enough to simply Google the topic. Otherwise, they would see that they don't know what they're talking about. 
Um, and specifically now, I want to I want to specifically pick on a person because Kai, the last time you and I had a podcast together, we mentioned in passing something that happens in wheat farming, and it also happens in corn farming, and it happens in you know uh, uh, cotton farming, and it happens in a lot of levels of farming, a lot of different types of farming. It's a thing called burn down. And what you do, there's pre-harvest burndown and there's post-harvest burndown. And um, the idea is, you know, back in like the 1800s or even in the 1920s and 1930s, the, the accepted method of farming was you had a really big plow and you deep plowed and you plow your field. And you plow under everything that's on the surface. You plow that down to about a foot or two feet or maybe even three feet deep so that the weeds on the surface are so deep down in the ground that when the when the seeds germinate, they can't make it all the way to the surface to uh, to grow and and you know replicate and make more weed seeds. So incidentally, the, however, this also causes you to overwinter have nothing growing in your fields, so there's nothing holding the topsoil down. So the topsoil just blows away. Yeah, and that was something that came, became vividly obvious in the Great Depression during the Dust Bowl era when when winds came down and there was a couple dry years and winds came down and just literally blew the topsoil away from places like Kansas and Oklahoma and, and so forth. Um, so in order to overcome this problem of the deep plowing, uh, chemical companies, not just Monsanto, all kinds of chemical companies, DuPont, a lot of different chemical companies, started looking at ways to to deal with the weed situation without deep plowing. And uh, when I was in farming in the 70s, I worked farm labor. I didn't like own a farm or anything. I was literally standing out in cotton fields with a hoe in the in the burning sun. Um, pulling up weeds and hoeing weeds and stuff and, and going from row to row with an armload of little plastic, uh, pipes and, and siphoning water, uh, out of a ditch into each row with a, with a plastic pipe and dropping another plastic pipe at each one, doing irrigation like that in the San Joaquin Valley in California. It was literally minimum wage grunt work. I was working shoulder to shoulder with illegal immigrants and, uh, and it was real hard work. But even back in the seventies in the cotton fields, in the weeks prior to the actual cotton harvest, uh, the, the farmers would Oftentimes they'd use crop dusters, but sometimes they would use, uh, you know, tractors with mechanized sprayers. And they would spray the cotton with a defoliant that would knock down not only the cotton plant itself, but any weeds that were in the field. And as I mentioned in the last uh, time that, that, Kai, that you and I were together, um, this process is called pre-harvest burn down. Okay, you don't think it happens? Brilliant people who who are contacting me and telling me how stupid and dumb I am because I believe the horrible Monten Monsanto uh, anti Monsanto rants. No, you know what? Google it. Is it that difficult? Is it so much easier to criticize me than it is to simply Google pre harvest burn down? Folks, try that. If you don't believe me, instead of yelling at me and showing what a great unbelievable fool you are. Google pre-harvest burn down. And you know what? The odds are the first thing that's going to come up is wheat harvest. And it's, it's not going to be some crazy site that's anti-Monsanto. 
It's in all likelihood going to be a university site with a document that explains how it works. This is not crazy conspiracy theory stuff. We're not talking about chemtrails. Why are you beating up your mic? Oh, sorry. We're not talking about chemtrails. We're not talking about foil hats. We're not talking about lizard people. We're talking about an established business practice that is well known, and you can Google it and find out all about it. This is not wild paranoia. That's not what this is. It is simply a well-known thing that happens. Now, here's another thing. Among the different ways to criticize me, that might be in going to the Bad Quaker website and and making uh, you know commenting in the notes of the show that the, the whichever show that applies to this. It might be in uh, emailing to Bad Quaker at badquaker.com. There might be there's all these different ways to contact me. But you know what? One way not to contact me is to go to Facebook and and put something on Facebook thinking you're talking to me because as I've said probably 500 times, I'm not on Facebook. Now, if it seems like I'm a little angry, I'm not really angry. I'm just agitated. Because simple things that I've gone over and over and over don't seem to soak in. And honestly, this is not the kind of thing that drives me away from podcasting. What drives me away from podcasting is the 8 to 15 hours of work that it takes to put together one single podcast. That's what's driving me away from podcasting. That's why I'd rather go and just turn on the mic and talk to Michael Dean on the Freedom Fiends with with little or no preparation, and we just sort of skip off of each other and do a show because it's conversational and we don't really have to think about it. And that's kind of what our show today is going to be with uh, with Kai. So this is not this is not the kind of thing that's going to cause me to pod fade or whatever, but it is something that every podcaster faces. You face those people out there that would rather criticize you than actually take a moment to check out the story and see if it's true. And really, for anyone, if I I've noticed this among uh, with myself, sometimes I think things and I think that I know them. And in my brain, it seems like I know that piece of fact or I know that trivia, you know, whatever. Um, but you can't identify a source for that information. So anytime you have something come to your brain and you say, oh, wait a minute, that's not right. Or, hey, I, I know something about this. Stop and look at your brain's like bibliography and say, where did I get that piece of information? How do I know that piece of information? Is that piece of information correct? And if it's not, we live in an age where you can know anything about anything at any time for free. Just Google it. Just look it up. Before you, before it leaves your mouth or before it leaves your fingertips on the internet, stop and go, is this something I really know? How do I know it? Are my resources and references correct? Let me double check myself. It takes two seconds to look something up on the internet. And most people, especially if you are on the internet, you can access it from your phone at any moment. So just look it up. And I'll say that uh, up there with reasons, this is particularly uh, severe with a new podcaster who's just starting out. 
up there with the, the, the two major reasons, let's put it this way, the two major reasons that causes a podcaster to fade is one, either the lack of audience um, participation or feedback, uh, them literally not knowing if anybody's hearing or not. And the other half of that same equation is stupid audience feedback and the frustration of feeling like you're wasting your time. And that is, uh, you know, when a person takes 10 or 15 hours to put together a podcast and some flippant half brain on the Internet takes five minutes to attack you, um, it really makes you feel like, why did I just put 10 hours of effort into trying to make a good podcast when this person, without checking on anything, can make me feel like an idiot. Not not make me feel like an idiot because I might or might not be wrong, but make me feel like an idiot for wasting my time on the Internet trying to help people for free. That really grinds on a podcaster, and it really makes them feel like, why am I doing this? Why am I wasting my time? Why am I putting my efforts into something that people don't appreciate or that the only feedback I get is from people like this who are just either too lazy or too stupid to look something up before they attack me on it? Um, hey, on, on the same thing, are you familiar with the phrase uh, copy pasta? No. It's uh, it means uh, a copy pasta is a thing where rather than create your own um, response, you have a, a a bank of things that you can just go to, copy them, and splatter them. So if this is really common in forums and places like that, where you get you know the same uh, the same argument comes up over and over and over. But what would we do about the roads? But who would build the roads? But without the government, how would we have roads? And so the tendency is to just have a, a preset thing that you can just copy it and paste it. And it's kind of like pasta. It's kind of like, you know, it's quick, it's easy, it's cheap, it takes no effort, and, and you can just throw it out there. But the but the other side of copy pasta and the, mo- the more common way that copy pasta is uh, referenced is in uh, is in mocking copy paste things. So, for instance, there's the the Navy Seal copy pasta, which essentially is, you know, how dare you say that to me? I happen to be an expert in this field, or I happen to be a Navy Seal with over five million uh, confirmed kills, and I've you know I've been on top of the mountains of Afghanistan shooting down at the bad guys, and uh, if you mess with me, I'll hunt you down like a dog and and that's one of the co- that's the the navy seal copy pasta but but there's variations of it where how dare you say this to me i'm the expert i am unbelievably qualified you know i was there when kennedy was shot i was there when the neil armstrong walked on the moon i was there when and they make all kinds of ridiculous claims about uh about their experience or about their expertise or about their knowledge or their you know I happen to be a a, a doctorate of philosophy or I happen to be a senator or I happen to be and they have all this great credentials that they want to throw at you almost certainly it's all fake so a copy pasta is something that you would do to mock a person like that you know so uh so that's kind of what you see um with very often when you um when you're doing a podcast 
and somebody comes in and they want to tell you what a great expert they are on the topic and then they make an utterly ridiculous statement you have this this great desire to you know do a copy pasta and and put something like the navy seal thing on there except the navy seal one if you actually read the standard Navy SEAL copypasta, it's extremely rude. And if you don't understand that it's a joke, it sounds like a threat because it's it's really nasty and really rude. But, uh, yeah, so uh, that's a kind of a defense mechanism that people use to deal with these Internet experts. Interesting. So now you know a new word. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm knowing, I know you're memeing it. Yeah. So uh, this probably won't be the final podcast. If we're gonna do, if this is gonna be the final podcast, uh, final podcast, uh, it's gonna be, in, it's gonna end up being like six hours long. And I don't know, Kai, you probably don't have that kind of time to spend on today's podcast, do you? I don't have anything else to do today. Okay, let's buckle down for a nine-hour podcast. We're going to tell Woo! you everything you need to know about everything in life. <laughs> it's a. It's a... A podcasting, uh, oh, what's that word? Um, it's a podcastathon. Podcastathon. We're like, gonna like Jerry Lewis. We're gonna be here until we raise a hundred million dollars. You're gonna have to listen to us and call in right now. The operators are standing by. Oh man. Oh man. Uh, know your meme has the the um the Navy Seal copy pasta. Yeah, the Navy Seal copy pasta, and it is rough. Woo! Yeah, it's not something, it's not family friendly, let's put it that way. I'm not going to read it over the podcast, let me tell you that. I'm not sure you can get through one sentence of it over a, uh, a G-rated podcast. I couldn't the first three words on a G-rated <laughs> podcast. Um, I wanted to I wanted to say, just to take a moment to go back to the very first topic that you covered um, about the the podcast and archiving it and if people want an archive and things like that if you as a listener would like to help archive the bad quaker podcast and ensure that the uh the bad quaker message is available on the internet for the rest of eternity the easiest way for you to do this um well the nicest way for you to do this is for you to uh donate either money or bitcoin to help um, pay for the archival uh, website. But the easiest way to do it, if you can't afford or, or whatever, um, is to download the files of the podcast and then seed them in torrent. Um, and please, if you like our podcast, please, please, please seed those torrents. Uh, and I would have said that, except I don't know how to do that. And I have tried several times to figure it out. And, you know, I here and here's an example, and I'm just going to slam a, a person uh, specifically in, in this. But um, some, like a couple months ago, I decided that I wanted to do a podcast basically talking about how Silk Road and, and places like that work and how... Uh, how the black net side of the internet works and how, or the dark net side, I should say, and how Tor works and things like this. And so I started asking around to different people that I knew uh, used this kind of stuff or that I thought used this kind of stuff. And I was having a hard time. Mo most of the people that I talked to only knew about it theoretically. They had never actually gone on 
the Darknet actually, you know, logged onto it, uh, went to Silk Road or some other source like that, purchased something, had it delivered. I couldn't actually uh, find people who were experienced in that. And then uh, I got to one very uh, well-known figure in uh, in the Liberty community. Uh, somebody referenced me to that person, and I know this person. I've spoke with them many times in person and on, uh, you know, over the internet and through uh, email and so forth. So this particular person has gone on broadcast radio and bragged about buying things over uh, the uh, Silk Road. So I know that this person does not want to hide their their identity and be secret about it. They've been very bold about it, and they're an open activist who likes to, uh, who has practically made a profession out of getting arrested for silly little nonsense. And so this person has gone on the radio and bragged about, you know, um, going on uh, Silk Road and buying things. So I sent him an email and I said, look, I'd really like to interview somebody who has experience with this and talk to him about it so that I can talk about it with some kind of, you know, some kind of knowledge base and not just this secondhand thing that you get from so many people on the Internet. So many people on the Internet at first act like they know all about the dark net and they know all about buying from Silk Road and stuff like this. But then when you start asking them specific questions, it turns out, it's all in theory. They've never actually done it. So I was hoping to talk to somebody who'd actually done it, do an interview. It could even be an anonymous interview. But I just wanted to have a knowledge base so that I could speak about it with some kind of authority and some kind of experience. And the answer I got back from this very prominent liberty personality who everybody would know their name if I said it was essentially, why don't you just read the manual? And I was like, Thank you. Thank you for taking the time out of your precious day to answer me like that when I had this question for you. And honestly, when I have done a lot for that person and to help and promote that person's product. And thank you very much for being an entirely complete jackass with me. So I won't name names because uh, it's just not necessary. But I think people on the inside will know exactly who I'm talking about because this person has a tendency to uh, to do that kind of thing with people. So that's fine. So anyway. Was it Stefan Molyneux? I bet it was Stefan Molyneux, wasn't it? No, he's too good to even answer my email. He wouldn't even uh, – I, I had to, to get an interview with him at, at Porkfest, whatever it was, three or four years ago or whatever. I literally had to chase him down and stick a microphone in his face because he avoided me so much. I even at one point accused Molyneux of being afraid of me because uh, because he's so follically challenged, <laughs> and I so clearly am a you know compared to him, uh, I have the abundance of the of the uh, silverback gorilla so to speak or the or the dominant lion in a pack. Well, he is uh, so follically challenged. I I I made that challenge to him with the with the hope that there would be some drop of testosterone within him that would cause him to wake up and take my challenge. But instead, uh, he uh, went the opposite way and just ignored that, which maybe, you know, maybe that means he's the better person or whatever. But eventually, the only way I could even interview him was to literally chase him down, corner him where he couldn't get away, 
in front of people at Porkfest and ask him to do my podcast, and then he agreed to do it. Uh, but then again, you know, that doesn't always work either as a technique. Um, I did exactly that, that same thing to somebody who I thought was my friend, um, who was uh, Larkin Rose at the last Pork Fest. And he just looked at me and looked the other way like I wasn't even talking to him. So I don't know. Uh, whatever, whatever method will work for you that, you know, whatever, when you try to get interviews or whatever. But no, it wasn't uh, Stefan. It was somebody who arguably reaches a bigger audience that's, than Stefan has ever hoped to. And I know that's kind of shocking, but uh, but it's the truth. Stefan, I believe, doesn't reach the size of an audience that he claims to. But that's just my suspicion. I can't really prove it. Yeah. But anyway. Um, back to the torrent thing. Uh, seeding torrents is actually pretty easy, but it does require that your computer be sitting there seeding torrents the entire time. Like it's something that your computer has to actively do. Um, but it's, it's as easy as downloading, uh, the, the torrenting software, um, which is, uh, uTorrent is what I use. I really like uTorrent. It's really user intuitive. It's easy to use. It's easy to, to download things. It's easy to upload things. uTorrent is very easy. Um, I can't do that because with me being mobile, you know, we're switching uh, uh, internet providers back and forth between our mobile uh, internet provider that we carry with us everywhere and local internet providers in whatever uh, park that we're in or whatever campground that we're in. And we don't always have our computers on. Uh, we have, to, you know, we're constantly shutting them down, moving, starting them back up again and so forth. And so. And seeding torrents uses as much data as uh, downloading torrents. So yeah. it's, it's very data intensive. So in our case, where we're on a mobile hotspot with uh, Verizon, which gives us a very fast, very dependable um, connection, but we're limited on bandwidth. So we, we're, we're set to use like 30 gigs a month. And we come real close to that limit every month. And sometimes we have to just throttle down and almost not use the Internet to get to our last couple days uh, to try to maintain under 30 gigs. So, uh, you know, that's it's just out of the question for us to do something like that. Okay. Um, you know what, though? Did you have anything else on torrents and that kind of thing before we move on? Uh, no, not that I know of. I mean, just torrent. Torrent's good. Torrent's your friend. If you have the data abilities to torrent, you should torrent. Uh, we just torrented the interview, actually. Um, speaking oh, the of, movie. The movie. Uh, the interview. Yeah, speaking of uh, admitting federal crimes on radio. Um, <laughs> well, we're not on real radio. We're just on the inner tubes. Oh, that's true. I don't think you can be prosecuted for something you say on the Internet. <laughs> they don't well unless you threaten not a cop like, well yeah if you threaten not a like cop or a judge internet. then go ahead not like the commercials say you can say things that are not true on the internet <laughs> um so real quick before we get into any kind of meat and potatoes today let's uh let's cover the controversy that's going on with molyneux since we've already breached his holiness's uh, uh domain um, let's uh, let's take a, a cheap pot shot at um, his awesomeness, the the bald one, 
and uh, and if and if you're listening and you're like, Ben's making fun of people who are bald. That's rude. Uh, yeah, it probably is. Uh, but you know, my hair is a lot thinner than it was just even a couple of years ago. And I've never really, my brother is absolutely completely cue ball bald. And I, all my life I figured I would be bald. And the fact that I'm not is kind of an oddity. And so I was prepared to go bald, you know, very early in age and it hasn't happened to me yet. And it still might happen to me. I don't know. But that's kind of like turning gray or losing your teeth or whatever else. It's just that's just an aspect of age. The difference is when somebody um, really can't uh, can't handle it. And I think actually Stefan uh, took the correct route, which is you know you're going bald. Why do you try to hold on to remnants of days gone by? Why do you? Why would a person want to try to hide it under a wig or whatever? Just embrace it, shave off the ugly part, and go with it. You know, just fine. There it is. It's, there's no hair there. There's no shame in being bald. It's well, true. If you are losing your hair to the point where it it is obvious that you are going to go bald, just shave it. You're gonna get there eventually. Just just go there. Or on the other hand, you know. Um, or be one of those old hippies that have the long hair and, and the, then and the, the bald ponytail. top. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no shame in that. It's just, you know, however, if you want to go natural with it, um, you know, it's it's very much like turning gray. It's kind of a sign of age and wisdom. It's not, there's no shame in it. I don't see, I've never really understood why people dye their hair or wear wigs. Or Then again, I don't understand why people cut their hair. It's like... You know, nature made it this way, or God, or whatever. You, however, you think the hair got on your head. Um, why I live would, outside. I know why people cut their hair. Well, why sure, my for hair maintenance. Is short. Yeah, for maintenance because long hair takes a lot more work than short hair. Short hair is low maintenance. That's why slaves throughout and it history. Bugs. Yeah, <laughs> but that's why I slaves throughout bugs. history, uh, in in almost all cases, slaves were, requ- were were required to shave their heads, or at least shown them down to the point of where there was very little hair there, and that was a sign of them being a slave. Oftentimes, not not always, but very oftentimes, it was a sign of uh, th- that way. You could a lot look of around. times it's also uh, a sign of somebody who has sort of um, like dedicated themselves to something. Specific, like uh, like when Tibetan monks, well, I guess Buddhist monks, I shouldn't say Tibetan monks, I, Buddhist monks join uh, their monkdom. They shave their head. But again, that's Even kind the of... Nuns. Again, though, that's kind of a form of indicating that you're a slave to whatever that um, belief or religion or philosophy or whatever is. Did I lose you? They probably wouldn't, they probably wouldn't appreciate slave, but uh, servant. <laughs> yeah. Slave, says I. (laughs) (laughs) I call them as I see them and slave, says I. It's very interesting, though, because from from very early in human civilization, we get these cultural ideas about our hair. Um, And 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 hair is sort of seen as as this defining factor. Um, If if. You're female. You should cover your hair, or you should. Uh, it, it's seen as a sign of vanity. Hair almost immediately was seen as something to be vain about. Yeah, and actually, uh, this is specifically true in the case of men. In um, ancient cultures, 
where the leadership uh, classes, whether that be the warrior class or the, uh, you know, the the nobility class or whatever, often cases uh, they would be very vain about their hair, very big beards, very long hair. You see this throughout the Middle East. You see this in Nordic areas. Um, anybody in a leadership leadership position was very vain about their beard and their hair. And um, oftentimes, if you captured, you know, an enemy warrior that was a warrior of renown, or if you uh, had someone in government or someone, uh, even a warrior class, who was found to be corrupt in some way, and they had brought shame upon their class or whatever, uh, and this was true also in Japanese culture, uh, the way that you would shame them uh, w- would be to cut off their hair and shave their beard. Or in, there's a biblical case where um, two uh, um, Israelite spies were captured in a foreign country uh, by that nation. And in order to humiliate them, they shaved half their face uh, and then sent them back to Israel. And, and That's awful. Yeah, and this was such a point of shame that the king, when he saw it, they were, they were brought before the king, and he was so appalled by this horrible thing that had been done to his spies that he paid to have these two spies taken away where nobody would be able to see them until it took time enough for their beards to completely grow back. So they were essentially given a paid vacation to hide until their beards grew back. They wouldn't have to face the the humility of being in public with their faces, uh, um, you know, uh, displayed like that. And it, and the king ended up going to war over it. So it was that level of an insult to take a man and cut half his beard off and then to send him back to his king uh, in that manner. Hair in general, and I know we've talked about hair a lot on the podcast. Um, it's a topic that has come up a lot. But hair in general is one of the very first things that a liberated person takes control of. And and I don't mean this just in, you know, oh, I'm going to stop shaving my legs because I'm a, a liberated feminist or, or I'm going to stop cutting my hair because I'm a hippie. You know, it's not just that. It's... Uh, I'm going to um, cut my hair because I'm a female and I've been told that I have to have long hair all my life and now this is a revolution to cut my hair. It's it's just that that idea of this stuff is growing out of my body and I have control over it. Yeah, it's an you know, I own me very, issue. Yeah, one of the very first things that like a little kid, like a little girl might do is give herself a haircut just in that, you know, ah, this is mine. I can do stuff with this. Yeah, it's a, it's an act of rebellion against authority that they feel pushing against them. And, and it's, it's very interesting. Not, not necessarily a negative act of rebellion. It can be an act of, uh, you know, a positive assertment of their rights, of them, of them saying that I own me, I am my own person, you, you don't own me, I, I can control, you know, that which is a part of my body. This is my body, I decide to do with it what I want. I think people take a very negative view of, re- of rebellion and, and, um, asserting your independence, but I think in a healthy human society, those things are embraced and encouraged. 
Um, since we uh, threw a rock out there at Molyneux earlier, um, we probably should, and also since we're not probably going to get to the real ending the podcast bookend type subjects that I wanted to touch with before we do end the podcast, uh, before we end the whole podcast I'm talking about, not just today's show, but um, it's kind of hard to not mention the unbelievably ignorant, stupid, uh, wacky, somewhat insane position that Stefan Molyneux took recently on the uh, the cops choking that dude in uh, New York City, and all of the really poorly informed um, arguments that are being made in different directions in regards to this. So, right before we started recording, I asked Kai if she had heard about Molyneux's uh, snafu, and... Um, Wow, you know, even the word, it just dawned on me, even the word snafu, we can't actually say on this show what that stands for, but uh, uh, it, it would certainly apply to all things Molyneux over the course of 2014. It seems like he just stepped out of one pile into another, but um, but anyway, um, he had taken some somewhat questionable and somewhat confusing positions on the Ferguson incident, and he, it, it's been claimed of Molyneux that it, it appears from outside observers as though he's figured out that he's milked all of the money that he can milk from his, you know, 15 to 25 year old male unemployed living in their mom's basement audience, and, um, and especially once he gets to the point, once those 15 to 25-year-old male listeners get to the point of that where they defoo their parents and their parents are no longer letting them live in the basement and giving them an allowance and supporting them, and they have to actually go off and get their own job, and then, uh, you know, the amount of money that they can send to Molyneux is, begins to decrease. And so some have accused Molyneux of coming to the conclusion that his business model was flawed, and therefore, he's branching out into the race baiting and, you know, um, the male rights. I, I'm not sure what it's called. Men's rights movement, which he's becoming more and more active. And some people have even accused him of being uh, an att attempting to be the next, you know, sort of more libertarian version of Glenn Beck or something like that. To where it's it's a lot more milk toast uh, and less anarchist. So I don't know if any of that's the case or not. It's certainly from the outside. It certainly looks like it's going in that direction. His his attacking a uh, his using the government, and that's exactly what he did. And people can twist the story and say, no, he was using YouTube. No, he wasn't. He used a legal filing that is recognized by the United States government through an act that was signed by President Clinton and is enforced by the United Nations to force YouTube to take down a channel, and he did so what very likely is under false circumstances because he's lied about it at least twice since then. And the claim that he made that they were using copyrighted material um, is probably, since it's going to court, it's probably going to turn against him in that situation, but also the claim that he made that the person involved, going by the name of True Shibes, was uh, doxing uh, his listeners is an absolute lie. That was not happening. Uh, so with all these things happening to Molyneux over the course of 2014, 
um, he's really struggling to try to come to a point of how he can balance these things out with stuff that he used to teach. And now he's, uh, and you can hear folks, Kai's back to batting her microphone back and forth. I didn't even touch my microphone. (laughs) I didn't even touch the table that my microphone was on. Anyway, um, so now Molyneux has taken on this issue of the, um, of the guy who was choked in New York City. And I think, and I'm not sure because I haven't sat down and read dis- depositions. I haven't, you know, I haven't delved into this topic to the point of knowing every minutia of every single thing. I don't know the angles that the guy fell at, and I don't know the exact words that were spoken. And because, in a sense, I I almost don't care. I mean, police brutality is the direct result of having police. Period. That's the end of the topic. And to say, oh, well, it happened because of this or it happened because of that. It happened because you have a class of people in society who are there to enforce government arbitrary laws that are just made up by stinking, dirty politicians. And those people obey those laws and enforce those laws. Actually, they don't obey them. That's the problem. But they enforce those laws without question and without without any moral uh, uh, boundaries at all on their actions. That's what police are. They literally are police force. They're not, they're not here to protect and serve the people. They never were. They're here to protect and serve the, the elite that make up the laws to begin with. That's the only purpose of police. That's the only purpose they've ever functioned. Back in the days when they nailed Jesus to the cross, the police did the same thing then as what they did when they fired upon people in Boston in 1775, it was the exact th- same thing police were doing when they were busting heads in New York City during the during the uh, draft riots where Lincoln, stinking, dirty Lincoln, was forcing people into the military against their will, and it was forced by the use of uh, uh, of, of military police coming into New York City where there didn't already exist police, and literally shooting them down, shooting down the protesters in the streets because. Because they were protesting the draft laws. It's the same thing. Police are there to enforce the will of the elite. And that is the only purpose of the police. And the fact that they come out and fill out a form when you get in an accident... Or the fact that they come out and, you know, fill out a form when you've gotten robbed or whatever, that's a sideline to their business. Their business model. That's their disguise. Yeah. Their business model is to enforce the will of the elite. And that's the only thing that they are good for. And that's the only thing they do with any kind of uh, efficiency whatsoever. And they do it at the cost of the freedom of, of the individual citizens. So to discuss the, the semantics of, of whether or not, you know, this individual cigarettes were taxed, that's all beside the point. The police exist to beat down anybody who rejects in any way the rule of the elite. And that's where the, that's where the rubber meets the road in the argument. And all the rest is just nonsense. But now, as we examine the nonsense that Molyneux spewed from his big, dumb, empty head, you know, we're, we're told, we're told often what a great genius Molyneux is. But I think I have to go with David Gordon's analysis that, 
you know, he David Gordon said, I used to think that he wasn't stupid, that he was just misinformed or confused. But David Gordon basically said, but now I realize that he really is pretty stupid. And I've kind of come to that conclusion with Molyneux. He's an excellent businessman. He's a wonderful speaker. He's very intelligent when it comes to using the English language. But then again, you know, uh, there are gorillas who can who can essentially communicate language. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that Molyneux is really all that bright. But um, so what he said was a caller called in and uh, and I'm not even going to bother to link to it. There's so much links to this everywhere. You know, you can you can get it on Facebook. You can get it at a, a, a 50, 60 different websites. Um, people have talked about this all the way just to the point of sickening. It's been on the Freedom Fiends. It's been, you know, Larkin Rose has talked about it. Um, the great and mighty Chris Cantwell has talked about it. And, and uh, it's been talked about to the point of sickening on Free Talk Live. It's just, you know, it's just gone on and on and on talking about this. But essentially, Molyneux said that um, that he made the argument that the guy was make, was selling untaxed cigarettes and that he was doing so on a sidewalk in front of a store and he made the statement that the store called the police on the guy and he made the statement that... Um, that the guy was aggressing against the store for selling the untaxed cigarettes on the on the sidewalk in front of the store and a lot of people have confused this argument and said well he's selling cigarettes on the store's property no um the sidewalk is not the store's property um so that that entire aspect of the argument is nonsensical um now here's the thing i don't actually know that the store called the police. I don't know if they did or not. But whether they did or not, how would that be any different from a McDonald's calling the police on the Burger King that's across the street? Or the McDonald's calling the police on the hot dog vendor that's pushing his car down the street? And not only that, but um, probably he had bought those cigarettes Probably in that place. I now, mean, that's how this this racket goes. You go in and you buy cigarettes. You buy, say, a pack of cigarettes, and then you sell them individually for more than what they cost, you know, per pack. So you say, okay, so I bought this pack of cigarettes for five dollars, which he's in New York, so we didn't buy that pack of cigarettes for five dollars. We like probably 12, bought it for like twelve, fifteen. Um, but they're uh, what? Uh, I think there are 20 cigarettes in a pack. Something like that. I don't know. At any rate, uh, so you sell each one of those for a dollar, and a person who cannot afford a pack of cigarettes can afford a cigarette at a dollar, and you've just made more than the amount of money you spent on that pack of cigarettes. I think this is a real critical thing here to point out, because what we have is the phenomenon of uh, of a rich guy. I mean, you know, all nonsense aside, Molyneux's wife makes a good living, and Molyneux makes a good living off of off of his uh, so-called um, philosophy radio show. That's not actually on the radio. He lies about that. But um, but Molyneux makes good money off of his show. His wife makes good money. He lives in a, you know, a very elite community in Canada. He does, he's never 
actually had to scrape the ground and be poor in a real sense. I know he had a difficult childhood with a mother who was an alcoholic and a father, and they beat him, and it was horrible, and everything's his mother's fault. I understand all of that. But Molyneux has never, ever been really poor. And a lot of people might think, oh, well, I had a a whole summer where I was unemployed and things were rough. No, you've not been poor. There, you don't know what poor is. I mean, I would be, I would be amazed if there's 2,000 people. This is a realistic number between two and 3,000 people are going to download this podcast within the next week. And of that two or 3,000 people, I would be surprised if, well, and let's talk strictly within the U.S. because this is going to be downloaded in China. It's going to be downloaded in Eastern Europe. It's going to be downloaded in other countries as well. And but, that's an important statement. No matter how poor you are in the United States, and, and I know poor in the United States. Let me tell you, do I know poor in the United States? Poor in the United States is rich beyond belief. In other countries. Yeah. Um, if you claim to be, if you say, oh, well, I, I've been poor. If you haven't gone more than three days without any food, if you've never in your life gone three days without food, do not and tell not me you're poor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is not a fast where you decide to cleanse so that you can make you, you know, so that you can fit in that swimming suit. No, if you haven't, if you have been hungry for three days and you haven't been able to eat, and if you've been in a situation where you chose not to eat so that you could give your kids a little something to eat, while well, you yourself ate nothing. If you've never faced that situation, then don't tell me you're poor. Don't tell or me you've ever been poor. if you've never faced the prospect of, hmm, well, there's food in that trash can right there. I guess that's where I'm going to get my food. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so it, but I kind of distracted there from the point. So Molyneux has never faced that kind of poor. And most of the people that I see on the Internet talking about this situation have never faced this, have no knowledge of what inner city, even inner city America poor, the people that I've seen discussing this clearly have no clue what that means. Now, if you actually spent any time uh, around poor people in the United States, then you know that things like buying an entire pack of cigarettes for many people is out of the question. They can't do it. They're not ever going to have enough money to do that at one time. So what they end up doing is really wanting a cigarette for sometimes days at a time before they can come up with enough money to buy one cigarette from a street vendor. Now, because of that, the street vendor is taking a risk. It's and against the law to sell one cigarette. If you have ever been in any kind of American city and just stood around for a little bit on the street, you will either see somebody selling cigarettes individually or you will have somebody approach you and ask if you are selling cigarettes individually. Yeah. Hey, man, can I, can I buy a cigarette off you? Can I buy a cigarette off you? Especially if they see you holding a pack or if they see you taking out a cigarette and smoking a cigarette uh, in the inner cities or in really poor neighborhoods or whatever. It doesn't even have to be. This is not a black-white issue. There are, there are you know, white neighborhoods. There are white trailer courts where the same thing goes on. 
but um, but if they see you with a pack of cigarettes, very often that will be the case. They they will as a stranger. You know, in the olden days, it was no big deal to share a cigarette with somebody. But as economies tighten and as people struggle just to be able to afford a pack of cigarettes, they're more likely to be approached by someone who's willing to give them a dollar or even two dollars for a single cigarette, and that's yeah. against the law. Well, and and it's actually kind of funny because. As the economy has declined, um, I've actually even seen this among uh, uh, the social circles that I hang out in. It used to be the case where people would walk up to you and say, hey, can I bum a cigarette? Now it is almost considered unthinkably rude to ask that. You have to offer something. Uh, 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 hey, I'll give you a dime for a cigarette. Or I got a quarter. Can I have a cigarette? Yeah, because it's gotten to the point where to even ask for a cigarette for no money is so culturally rude that it has weeded itself out because the people know how much effort it took for you to buy that pack of cigarettes. Yeah, if you're paying 10 to 15 dollars for a pack of cigarettes, you know, it is an insult for somebody. And if you had to struggle to come up with that money to buy that, it is an insult for somebody to come up and want one free. Get away, you stinking beggar. You know, I mean, that's... I've also seen people um, hand roll cigarettes like, you know, you have the machine where you, right. you have the tube filters mm-hmm. and they will um, buy really cheap pipe tobacco because you can buy pipe tobacco for practically nothing. Um, you can get like a pound of pipe tobacco for like five dollars uh, in some areas, not maybe not New York. But in New York, it's probably more like ten dollars for a pound of pipe tobacco. But you can sit there and roll cigarettes. And then you can sell a pack of cigarettes for $5 in New York or for a dollar a cigarette, and your profit margin is through the roof. Now, I don't know the guy who uh, got choked by the cops. I don't know what his method of obtaining cigarettes was. He could have just walked into the store, bought a pack or two of cigarettes, took them outside, broke the pack open, and sold them individually. Or he could have been rolling his own, or he could have been driving all the way to an Indian reservation and getting them slightly cheaper than he would in New York City. Um, He could have been doing any of those methods. But it's entirely disingenuous to try to claim that in any method that he used to obtain the cigarettes – it's entirely disingenuous to claim that he is ripping off or harming or aggressing upon the storekeeper in any way by selling individual cigarettes on the street. Uh, and he- even if he was, even if you could say in some magic world that competition is aggression. Commie. Uh, Stinking commies. How, how, under any circumstances, is the act of selling a cigarette worth a person's life? Well, and then here... That is a human being's life. We don't even know what life is. We can't even comprehend life. We cannot make life. Life is magic, okay? Life is so sacred... And to say, oh, well, he had it coming, man. He was selling cigarettes... Well, Molyneux, what planet are you from? Molyneux kind of infers the argument that um, had the guy just complied, the cops wouldn't have killed him, so his death is his own fault. Now, this is completely contrary to everything Molyneux has stood for over the years, but that's the claim that he makes. And it's been pointed out by others that 
uh, that's the opposite claim that Molyneux made when the very white uh, ranchers out there in Nevada were dealing with uh, government thugs and they stood up to the government thugs. It's funny that Molyneux makes the argument when the black guy is attacked by police, it's the black guy's fault, but when the white guy in Nevada is essentially attacked by police, it's the police's fault. And yet, if you boil it down, it's kind of the same argument. Resisting uh, resisting government power takes a certain amount of risk, and it's foolish to take that risk without understanding the repercussions of it. So, for instance, with the guy in New York City, uh, you're a black man in New York City, you re- resist cops, there's a good likelihood you're going to die. You're a white guy in uh, Nevada surrounded by other white guys who are all ranchers with rifles and you resist the cops, there's still a possibility you're going to die, but there's a far greater possibility you're not going to die, that they're just going to wrangle things through courts and eventually take everything you own, uh, but they're probably not going to kill you. And and that's a fact of American society. The fact of American society is a cop on the on a street in New York City will kill a black man, but a cop... And you can play with the wording of what agency he works for or what kind of badge he wears or how, what color costume he wears or whatever. But it's, it's still, all that is, is just nonsense. Still, a cop in, uh, the desert in Nevada is going to behave completely different with a rancher who is armed and is surrounded by a few dozen other ranchers who are but armed. See, there's the problem right there. That's the issue. Race is not the issue there. And, and, this gets me so, so angry. Well, hold on, hold on. Hear... Hold on. It is an issue, I think, when Molyneux addresses it. But to us looking at it from the outside, it's we look at the, at the situation in New York City exactly the same as we look at the one in uh, Nevada. But for some reason, Molyneux looks at the guy in New York City differently than he looks at the guy in Nevada. And I think that's race. I can't prove that's it. That's true. That's but, true. That, but yeah, that, you're right. That stinks of racism. But I would like to point out that cops kill white people too. And and if you are a white female, the odds of you being raped by a cop are ridiculously high. You know, cops are so bad with gun handling that they tend to even shoot themselves with great regularity. Just, it's true. Just, cops are killing everybody up in here. And and when I see things like black lives matter, it makes me really angry because human lives matter. Yeah. All human lives matter. And when you start dividing human lines in our lives in any way, when you start saying this section of humans or this section of humans, you are wrong and you are part of the problem. All it, humans are the same. And, and if you try to distinguish the behavior of one person in New York City who's, who behaves one way against the cops and dies for it and another guy in Nevada, you know, who behaves pretty much the same way against the cops, which is to resist them, uh, when you differentiate between the two and say, well, that guy deserved it and that guy didn't, then you're part of the problem. It's true. Um, but okay, and now here's another thing too. Uh, it's been claimed that well, the guy committed suicide by eating too much and being fat, 
and it wasn't the cop's fault that they killed him because how are they supposed to know that, you know, being that fat, uh, you can't strangle a guy and climb on top of him and push his body into the concrete and expect him, you know, how would, how would the cops know that you can't climb on top of a three or four hundred pound man and not, you know, uh, crush his heart and kill him? Oh, um, gee, I don't know. Maybe they should have training. <laughs> Training, well, you know that training that they go through that's supposed to make them more worthy than the rest of us, that's supposed to allow them to uphold the law? But it, but it all boils down. And now here's something else, though, that is an aspect of this. Uh, going back to pick on Molyneux some more, the guy who was actually strangled and died, he he said some things and if you look at his record of arrest, and Molyneux tried to pull this up and use it against him, but the caller that called in kind of hit the right note um, in this. So uh, so this guy has a, a, an arrest record as long as your leg. He's been arrested over and over and over and over over the years, and many times it was for selling individual cigarettes. But like the caller pointed out, how many of those were convictions and how many were arrests without a conviction? And Molyneux didn't know. And yet that didn't keep Molyneux from multiple times inferring that the guy was guilty because he had been harassed so many times by cops. In addition he's to that, he's a black man living in New York City. He's getting harassed all the time. Like I'm sorry, <laughs> but he is. He must be guilty. <laughs> but uh, but Molyneux's assumption was he must be guilty because he's been arrested so many times. And even when the caller clarified and forced Molyneux and his little slacky uh, Mike, what's his face in the background that went and got the the facts and brought them back to Molyneux like a good lap dog. Um, even when he brought them back and said, we can't tell how many times he's been convicted. We only know how many times he's been arrested. Uh, even after that, Molyneux sort of in a passive aggressive way reaffirmed the, the, in, in sort of an inference way, reaffirmed that he must be guilty. Otherwise he wouldn't have been arrested so many times. Now he doesn't say that outright, but Molyneux's word trickery and his use of the English, English language is so hypnotic that Molyneux literally, he's like an evan, like a really high quality evangelist, or he's like a, um, he's like a magician or a, or a stage hypnotist, or Bill he's, Clinton. yeah, exactly. He can use words in such a way that he can put a thought into your head. And if you're not paying attention, you won't recognize that he's the origin of the thought, not your own mind. And that's and if what you do recognize it and you get angry at him. He can immediately be like, I, that's not what I said. I didn't say that. Yeah, he, he leaves himself a plausible deniability in everything that he says and does so that he can always back up and go in a different direction. Um, but he infers this, that. Of course the guy's guilty. Look at the, look at the record of how many times he's been caught doing this before. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many times he's been caught doing it before. He shouldn't have been bothered ever once for it. Because there's nothing wrong with buying a pack of cigarettes or making your own pack of cigarettes and selling them individually. There's nothing wrong with that in the human experience. And to hassle somebody over it is wrong. And whether or not the guy paid taxes on the tobacco that he was selling, or whether he didn't, or whether he grew it himself uh, clandestinely on an uh, illegal plot of land somewhere, processed it himself, cut it up himself, made it into cigarettes himself, and was selling, even if he did all of that and totally bootlegged it from scratch, which I highly find totally implausible that he may have even done that, 
But Although even, if he did, I applaud him highly. Yeah, that's even even that's even more agorist of him for for doing that. But even if that's the case, and even if he completely avoided all taxation to get those cigarettes on the street, that is not that does not give the cop the slightest bit of right to even walk up and ask him his name or what he's doing. The cop does not have the right to do that if things were correct. That's and not- what I find hysterical is that in New York City, there are all sorts of people sitting on blankets and before folding tables and selling books and TVs and used this and that and knickknacks and, and, and nobody's dying over that. So, so why a cigarette? Like, why are you harassing this guy for a cigarette when you're not harassing the the junkie two blocks over for his bootleg DVD collection? Well, and part of it is because cops, this is a very well-known phenomenon. I can testify in my own personal experiences, and I know people uh, very close in, in our family who have faced this over and over, and I know other people that we're not related to that have faced this over and over. Once the local cops, and I'm talking about local, even in New York City this applies, because even in New York City, the cops are assigned to specific neighborhoods uh, uh, over and over. They're not, you know, randomly associated with the entire city of New York. They they have a tendency to be in a specific precinct and dealing with they the same neighborhoods. Beat. Yeah, exactly. So, so cops will get uh, a specific they'll get their radar on a specific person and they'll narrow the, they'll watch for that person and they'll narrow them out among all the other people and every time that person look, lifts their eyes the cop will be right there and bob marley actually put this in a song and I shot the sheriff, which I don't mm-hmm. like the song because it's annoying. Every time I plant a tree, uh, the sheriff cuts it down or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's it's oh, indicated. kill it before it grows. Yeah, kill it before, it, kill it, before it grow. Um, and that's what Bob Marley was talking about. Cops will specifically pick out somebody that they enjoy hassling, and they will seek them out, and they will look for them day after day after day, and they will hound them and hound them and hound them until they get the reaction out of them that they want. And then when they get that reaction out of them that they want, they beat them down as an example for all the other slaves. This is this is standard whipping boy procedure that has been known by the owners of humanity for for thousands of years, it is the same process that the pharaohs did. It's the same process that the Greek masters did. It's the same process that the Phoenicians did. It's been well documented. It's the same thing that happened in Antebellum South. It's when the the slave master specifically watches for one guy that he can separate out and make an example and beat him every chance he gets until he eventually kills him and then he holds up the dead body, shakes it at all the other slaves and says, you don't want to be this guy. Stay in line. And that's the reason for it. That's why that man is dead. It has nothing to do with cigarettes or taxes or whether or not he was standing in front of the wrong store or whether he was aggressing on a store. It's all about beating down the whipping boy until you kill him publicly so that all the other slaves stand in fear of you. That's what it's about. And if Molyneux can't figure that out, what good is he? 
Okay, and just another uh, post-production notation here. For some reason, there was a gap in the recording, and uh, we're going to pick back up where Kai and I were talking about the recent death of the girlfriend of the, the, the guy who was killed in the Walmart in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Uh, the guy was killed in Walmart in Beaver Creek, Ohio, when he picked up a toy gun off of a Walmart shelf and was walking around, probably walking towards the checkout stand with it. And people panicked. Was one specific Marine panicked, called 911, and cops came in and killed him before he could drop it. And so uh, Kai and I were talking about the recent death of the guy's girlfriend who died in a car accident in Dayton, Ohio, just the other day. So that's what we're talking about here, and I'm not sure why there was a dead spot in the recording, but here we go. question would be, uh, what was her state of mind? I mean, if you take a person and put them through what she's been put through in the last few months, um, it's likely that they would not be in a good state of mind. So that would be part of it uh, that I would, as an investigator, I would be looking at. But also, there's another thing that I would like to know, and if anybody has this information and can email it to me, or if you can just go to the website where this uh, podcast is, um, uh, uh, where the podcast is at badquaker.com, and go in the show in the uh, in the comments for today's show. And if you can put it there or if you can email it to me at badquaker at badquaker.com. Um, if anybody can find out what kind of a car, what year model specifically uh, of, of car that she was driving, because uh, it sounds on the surface very much like what happened with Michael Hastings where, um, and I'll say it blatantly because I have investigated this to the point of, of nausea, uh, Michael Hastings was murdered when elements of the government took control of the car that he was driving in, and it's been well established that they know how to do this, they can do it, and absolutely uh, have done it. Um, but they took control electronically through through computers. They took control of the car that he was driving and uh, accelerated it dramatically. They can control the steering. They can control the braking. They can control the acceleration. And they drove it at a high speed into a tree. And I would even argue that there's a substantial amount of evidence in the Michael Hastings case that the car blew up just a split second before it actually hit the tree. I think there's a substantial amount of evidence of that. Now, I don't know what happened with the lady's car who was the, the, the girlfriend of the guy who was killed in the Walmart in Beaver Creek. I don't know what happened. But if she was driving a car that's within two to three years old, and if it had uh, what might be called fly-by-wire technology, in other words, you hit the starter, you're not actually cranking a mechanical mechanism that engages another mechanical mechanism that makes the car start. You're just hitting something that sends a signal to the computer that starts the car. And when you, uh, in modern cars, this is how it is. When you step on the gas pedal, you're not stepping on a actuating arm that hooks to a cable that runs to the engine that opens a slide uh, that that actuates the either the injectors or the carburetor, modern cars with injectors, to physically actuate the fuel injectors to add more fuel. With modern cars within the last few years, 
when you step on the gas pedal, you are not actuating a lever that actuates a cable that actuates a valve. You are telling the computer what you want, and the computer tells the fuel injectors how much fuel to put in and how much to, uh, uh, to allow air to go in and so forth. And when you step on the brakes on a modern car, it, rather than stepping on a lever that pushes on a rod, that pushes into a master cylinder, that pushes liquid to slave cylinders, rather than doing that like in the olden days, you're instead actuating a button that essentially tells the computer to slow your car down. If if the car that she was driving is an older car that had old technology that was all manual done, then she was probably just driving too fast and died. But if she was driving it, a modern... It wasn't her car. Oh, do you know some details about this? Yeah, I, I, uh, I looked it up on WHIO, and uh, it was her friend Frederick Bailey's car, and it was a gray Pontiac sedan. Do we... It doesn't say the year. Okay. Um, if, um, but it was New Year's Day. Yeah. Or New Year's Eve. So if that was a modern vehicle within the last few years, then all it takes to take control of that computer system is access to the car, which can be obtained really easily. Um, I'm not any kind of a great locksmith, but I've opened a lot of locked cars. And I'm not any kind of a great hacker, but I know that uh you know the the work of several prominent uh, hackers at least one of which died under very mysterious circumstances that maybe we can get into on our next podcast when we when we wrap up a bunch of this stuff it's it's well known that cars can be taken over and uh, you know if you got an objection to what i'm saying just google it folks it's out there it's not that hard to come up with there's videos of showing how a guy with a laptop can control a full-size modern car like he's driving an rc race car rc being radio controlled people and that brings up a totally different rant um, a radio-controlled little helicopter or airplane or car is not a drone, okay? A drone is a self-functioning vehicle that analyzes a situation and responds to it. That's different than radio-controlled, you know, radio-controlled helicopter, radio-controlled airplane or whatever. But anyway, that's a totally side thing that irritates me. But but modern cars, absolutely, uh, it's really easy to go into their computer you don't even have ac- you don't even have to have access to the computer the newer ones you can slide a cd into the cd player and infect the computer on board the car and actually go through wi-fi technology and control the car from outside the car whether that be you know on a street nearby in a helicopter overhead uh, from an AWACS plane flying overhead. There's all kinds of different ways that you can do this to control the vehicle remotely. And the person sitting in the, in the, in the vehicle, you can actually go so far as to tighten their seatbelt down almost to the point of crushing them. You can, you can do that control with the computer. Uh, so I don't know what kind of car she was driving, but that would be a really interesting thing to find out if, if possible. Yeah, it didn't say the year. It just said that it was a Pontiac sedan, um, and that uh, it, it did say that they did not determine alcohol to be a factor in the crash. So she was sober, driving unbelievably. She wasn't driving. Oh, okay. There was a different driver. 
yeah, yeah. The the car belonged to this other man, and uh, and he was driving. She was the passenger. Oh, okay. Um, well, is there anything else you wanted to add to all this uh, rambling nonsense before we hang it up for today? Uh, I can't think of anything. Okay, uh, in our next podcast that we're going to get to as soon as uh, as soon as is convenient for us to to take care of all this stuff, uh, I really want to do sort of a bookend um, podcast where we wrap things up. We talk about um, some things that I've never talked about on the podcast, uh, some things that are going to be kind of shocking. Ooh, cliffhanger. Yes, I, I really want to build this up a little bit because once we do the final podcast at badquaker.com, um, and I have extensive notes, so, you know, uh, watch out. But once we do the final podcast, it, there's going to be a couple different reactions to it. Some people are going to go, wow, um, Ben is crazy and jumped the shark, and it's a good thing he stopped podcasting because he's gone Looney Tunes. Uh, others are going to say, you know, uh, Ben's gone off the deep end and he's become a complete com- conspiracy theorist and he's nuts and everything that he's said so far, we should mullinize it by completely discrediting it and forget that he ever existed. And other people are going to listen to it and they're going to say, could that be true? And then they're going to follow some of the links that I'm going to provide and they're going to see that as crazy as some of the things I'm going to say in that podcast sound, there is strong evidence for each and every point that I make. And um, for those people, that's the ones that I'm going to be putting this book and podcast together for uh, because I really don't care about uh, about distractors. And uh, I really don't care if somebody thinks I'm crazy. When we finish this off, um, I'm going to leave it with a final note that I really think is going to be mind-blowing. And then I'm just going to drop the mic and walk off. We'll close things up, turn the lights off, and uh, and that's going to be it. And eventually, as soon as the Freedom Fiends, as soon as we can get the Freedom Fiends, I'm working with Michael and the guys and, and ladies over there, as soon as we can get Freedom Fiends to the point of where we get the kind of an uh, uh, audience that we're looking for, which I think probably a saturation point is about 50 radio stations. We're in the mid-30s now. We have about 34 or 35, I'm not sure exactly, uh, radio stations. Sometime when we get to about 50 radio stations or so, uh, Michael's not going to need me anymore. And so I'm going and and assuming that the other uh, co-hosts are going to step up, and I believe they will, and we're going to be bringing in new people as well. And as soon as we can get uh, the Freedom Fiend radio show to the point where Michael can get by without me comfortably, then I'm going to back out of that also, and I'm literally going to vanish off of the Internet. I have no uh, long-term desire to be on the Internet doing anything other than you know playing battleship or something like that and i and whoa 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 you can play battleship on the internet yeah oh man you can play wasting my life you can play against the computer or you can play against other opponents it's really fun but i but but, can you play battle shots on the internet (laughs) well (laughs) 
<laughs> I guess that would be up to you, really. Yeah, yeah, that's a side aspect of the game. Um, I have a pattern that I play Battleship with that wins, I would say, probably in the 90 percentile range. So it's still challenging for me, but I, I have figured out a pattern. I That's what I do with games. I figure out the pattern. And then I just uh, go after that pattern. That's why chess is so difficult for me, because the range of patterns that's available is based on your opponent's moves. And it changes so dramatically with each of their moves that it's really difficult to think 10 or 15 moves ahead and, and figure the thing out. But most games, like Battleship, I figure out the pattern, and then I just repeat that pattern and until... It's basically an odds kind of a thing. It's kind of like playing blackjack or something. But anyway, that's all beside the point. I play games by figuring out what the easiest cheat codes are and using those. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what humanity... That's how we got to where we are as humans. It's like, you know... They I liked Battleship a lot because you could just move your boats. <laughs> Not miss. No, sorry, you missed. I don't... Oh, but, you know, what I liked about Stratego, too, with Stratego, you didn't have to show what piece uh, got taken. So if they (laughs) took your flag, you just put it aside and be like, oh, that was that was a nothing piece. And then, you know, you get to the edge of their their board and you can just take your flag back and be like, oh, I had it all along. (laughs) Oh, man. Don't play games with me. I'm not a good I'm not a good sportsman. Well, you know, that's kind of, you probably picked up on my card playing methods back when you were like three or four years old or something. Man, I'll tell you, I figured out pretty early that you could cheat at games and I just didn't understand. To me, it was always easier to figure out the person that I was playing against and how I could cheat them than it was the game and how I could win it. Like the people were always way easier to read. Well, that's why you play against a computer, because that makes it uh, both entirely predictable and um, it, it makes you, because the computer is an aspect of the game, so uh, so you're defeating the game as well as the player. Yeah. Well, we should wrap this up. Um, so, folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. And if you have input on how uh, how you would like this archiving done, or if you have donations for the process, or if you're a forum member and you want and you have ideas on how we can either keep the forum alive or archive it or whatever your thoughts are, be sure and give us feedback on that. And again, folks, thanks for listening today. And, and Kai, thanks for coming on the show with me. Hurry back. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and we'll uh, shock everybody and upset them and, and anger them and, and uh, amaze them with our next one. Yay. Stay tuned for that cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs>